Derek, man, I don't know about this episode. This is our 61st episode, dude. I got bad vibes about this one. I don't know, man. Well, Aaron... 61, man. 61 episodes. 61 is unlucky anyway, especially for a podcast. Too old to get tit, too young to get ass, fucked either way. (laughs) Welcome everyone to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by myself, The Coward, and my co-host, the movie monster boy, Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Uh, man, it's crazy how, like, suddenly there's a vaccine and just life wants to get back to fucking normal so quick. Life finds a way. We are a horror movie podcast in which we watch horror movies and discuss fears, phobias, cultural relevancy, and just how scary these movies are for fellow newbies like myself and just how well they hold up for horror fanatics like Aaron. I mean, 61 episodes in, I think you got the gist. But uh, with that, it's just you and I, no guests this time around. We got a pretty interesting horror movie (laughs) this week that I thoroughly enjoyed watching. But before that, we are going to do our recommendations like we do at the beginning of most of our episodes, in which Aaron and I discuss other horror media that we've recently consumed, be it books, TV shows, comics, etc., and recommend them to each other. And hopefully you, our audience, hears something that you may want to check out. So with that, Aaron, have you been getting into any other horror lately? Absolutely. So I've got three things to talk about. Firstly, I will start with a comic series. Not necessarily like horror capital H. It is a Marvel superhero comic from the last couple of years. Um, it's James Robinson's run on the like titled Scarlet Witch series. Oh, it's so good. It was about 15, 16 issues long. Yeah. It is Scarlet Witch specifically, but it is very horror focused. Yeah. It's very like horror forward. I read this years ago when it came out, and I'm revisiting it now in the wake of WandaVision. By the time that this episode comes out, I mean, we will have the finale of WandaVision. Probably most people will have seen it at this point. I'm still not going to spoil it, but let's just say that some characters that show up and some plot threads that happen directly tie into this series. So I wanted to kind of go back and get a refresher and check it out. And yeah, I totally forgot how horror forward the series is yeah and i was gonna say those covers are done by david aja who did the art for the very famous kind of reinvented the character in a lot of ways for the last decade uh, hawkeye david aja and matt fraction did the award-winning hawkeye series and which is excellent yeah yeah which is excellent on its own right but james robinson said he was inspired by that and he actually had david aja do the the cover art for all the Scarlet Witch covers, which they are all beautiful. But yeah, it is much more heavily focused on the supernatural magic aspect of the Marvel Universe. And yeah, that Hawkeye series is fantastic. And the upcoming Hawkeye show for Disney Plus is actually pulling a lot from that series. So that'll be fun to see. But yeah, I, I was surprised going back to it just how dark and horror focused it is. So if you've watched WandaVision, if you 
want to know more, if you want like a good, concise, just here's a chunk of story that you can kind of read pretty quickly, I would definitely recommend checking that series out. Well, I was going to say also a pretty good portrayal of mental illness as well. Yeah. Kind of a plot point through the whole thing is her dealing with depression. So where Scarlet Witch is in the comics, it's even still to this day kind of like a thing in the comics is that like everyone passes her off. Even the people who mean well, they all pass her off as like emotionally fragile and her emotional fragile state with how powerful she is makes her kind of dangerous to the point where even like mutant kind like the X-Men and everyone treat her almost like she is their version of Satan because she was the one who did No More Mutants and House of M and kind of like rewrote that whole reality and really knocked down the mutant population. This series does such a good job of showing how she is like really shamed as a victim by the greater superhero community and how she deals with that and moves on from that and how her confidence as a superhero and just being a good person returns to her while she's dealing with all this supernatural bullshit that's also happening to her. That was kind of one of those things I I really enjoyed about this series. Not only did it have a lot of horror elements to it, but it really addressed that kind of even almost borderline problematic view that Wanda has had to deal with for several years and at least in the comic books of just being a monster, can't control her emotions, therefore she's dangerous. But so yeah, great series. I loved it. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Two movies. The first is the newest entry into Hulu's Into the Dark series. I have watched a few of those just whenever they are being written or directed by people that I'm interested in or the premise is interesting. This one is certainly one of those where it is written by Nick Antosca, good old New Orleans boy. He (laughs) wrote the Channel Zero series and was the main showrunner for that. His movie Antlers is still like in line and hasn't been released yet due to COVID, which I'm definitely looking forward to. But this new one he wrote and it is directed by Clara Aronovich it is called Tentacles and it is about a woman who is clearly homeless and she is bouncing from open house to open house kind of in the LA area and crashing these houses out and along the way she goes to one house where she kind of meets this guy and he's kind of wise to what she's doing a little bit and they kind of fall for each other and start a relationship and things kind of go from there and little by little we start to realize that things are off between them and it definitely goes to some interesting kind of Lovecraft ways starring Dana Drory and Casey Diedrich solid performances good atmosphere as always with Nick and Tosca stuff I really enjoyed it for the budget it had I thought it was solid good relationship drama stuff pretty genuinely horror stuff I just kind of wish that maybe there had been like more of a focus on some practical effects because the CGI stuff that's in the movie is not the best but I guess you know if we're talking like a made for a streaming service anthology movie series with limited budgets it is what it is but that one i definitely enjoyed definitely one of the better entries in that entire series so i would recommend checking it out again that is tentacles on hulu and then lastly we finally caught up to freaky oh nice which is michael landon's newest movie written by michael kennedy from the attack of the queer wolf podcast stars vince
Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton, and it is basically Freaky Friday, except the teenage girl in high school gets body swapped with a giant brooding serial murderer. Played by Vince Vaughn. Played by Vince Vaughn, yeah. <laughs> Which is a very cool casting, like, to get him in, like, a serial killer role. Yeah, it is very, very fun watching the two of them with their swapped personalities. Catherine Newton definitely comes off as mean, dangerous, biatch, and just the way that she's taken out everybody that crosses her in any way, shape, or form. All of that is pretty great. And then you also have Vince Vaughn, a high-pitched voice, running around, falling into shit, and talking about fucking Twitter and YouTube and shit. The best friend characters are great. Really, really solid kills throughout the movie. I kind of wish it was maybe a little bit bigger by the end. Because the movie definitely starts off with a really fucking insanely good opener where this group of teenagers at this kind of fancy mansion house that belongs to one of their parents all get killed off in the first five minutes. In some of the most creative ways I've seen in a minute, there's a fucking kill with a wine bottle. That's all I'm gonna say. And it's one (laughs) of the best fucking kills that I have seen in a movie in a long time. And everybody in the room watched this with, Heather and her parents, everybody was just, oh shit, in that one moment. Definitely, definitely a lot of fun. You know, like I said, I I wish it kind of went a little bit bigger by the end, especially considering that the concept is just already so ridiculous and the mechanism that enables it is so ridiculous. I kind of wish it goes a little bit bigger by the end, but again, it's a Blumhouse movie, limited budget. I get it. But yeah, definitely solid. All of the teen actors in it were really fun. Great writing. Really enjoyed it. And there's definitely some really fucking hilarious. Oh yeah, Michael Kennedy. I've been listening to you on Attack of the Queer Wolf for a long time. I know what your exact vibes are. And yeah, I I saw what you did there. Like so much of the shit that he's talked about on the podcast and wanting to see like more of this and horror movies and more of that and horror movies and him definitely just, okay, this is my opportunity. Cram it all into this fucking movie. That's great. I'm glad he got to like be able to do that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I really want to see more from him in the future as well. Cool. So yeah, those are my three recommendations. What about you? So my recommendations are really not stuff I necessarily kind of got into since our last recording. It's more, again, I'm going through a lot of my bookshelves and everything, just getting ready for baby. Babby. Babby. And in the process, reorganizing stuff and even like selling stuff off or giving it away. With that, I've been able to remember like, oh yeah, that's a good like horror recommendation, like something I want to either recheck out, did recheck out or think you should go recheck out or check out for the first time. The first one is also actually a comic book, and it actually has to deal with superhero-related horror, kind of like you with Scarlet Witch. Uh, My recommendation is DC Comics Blackest Night from 2009 to 2010, which was a crossover event. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the last crossover events DC had before they rebooted with New 52 in 2011, rather. The crossover was specifically geared towards Green Lantern and all like the Lantern Corps, but it really involved everybody basically. Before I even get to the premise, here's the thing, like it does have a lot of references to stuff long-term DC readers, people who like are Green Lantern fans will probably pick up and catch, but the thing is you don't necessarily need to know that. Like I didn't 
know shit about the Green Lantern Corps, like Same, the bare yeah. minimum. I read this series as well when it was coming out, yeah. partly at your recommendation and partly I was reading more superhero stuff at the time and it just seemed intriguing. Yes. But to your point there, like, yeah, I didn't know shit about the Green Lantern series. I vaguely knew that, like, there were all these different energy light wavelengths, different colors of the rainbow and all these different, like, there are the green lanterns that stand for XYZ emotional spectrum. Yeah. And then the other lanterns, right? That's, like, vaguely all I knew, but not a ton of details. But for people who might be interested in this, it's a Wikipedia read away. Like, it's pretty easy to catch up on. And even if you didn't do that, I pretty much caught on to, like, what was going on in the story pretty quickly and pretty much had it. I was like, okay, got it. Yeah, now I understand what's going on. It is pretty self-contained. Like, for those who want to, like, read the stuff before it or read the stuff after it that's cool that's there for you but if you just want to read it as a self-contained like crossover event that works as well like so it's written by jeff johns who is interesting is kind of the great satan of the like warner brothers dc movies at this moment yes (laughs) so jeff johns is a great writer he just knows how to write superhero comics he is responsible for really resurrecting literally hal jordan and barry allen i believe he is the person who like wrote both those stories in more recent DC modern comics. They were great. He does have kind of a weird way he treats Batman that kind of sucks, in my opinion. But otherwise, like he is really good at writing like DC comics. But yes, it's complicated because he is like, like you said, he is like head boy in charge for WB right now. And then a big part of the reason why the DC cinematic universe is like such a fucking mess. But beyond that, he wrote this crossover and it's great. What's the horror in this, right? The horror is that it centers around the rise of the Black Lantern Corps. And the Black Lantern Corps, their whole thing is they're just devoid of emotion and they basically represent death. And the way you're recruited to the Black Lantern Corps is you have to be dead. So what starts happening is the beginning of it starts with this C-list villain who like was obsessed with death and he was like a C-list Green Lantern villain from like the 70s. He basically like unlocks the power from a renegade elder of the Black Lantern ring. The crossover starts with him like murdering his whole family and then him getting recruited into the Black Lantern Corps because of like that ritualistic murder and suicide. And it goes from there. Like, and dead heroes who have been dead for long periods of time in the comics like start being resurrected as Black Lanterns. Uh, The Black Lanterns start stalking other heroes who are like certain types of emotions and killing them and then like resurrecting them as Black Lantern Corps members. And it is all centered around this personification of death named Necron. It just goes insane from there. And like within the big battles, you have like fucking Scarecrow, the Batman villain being recruited to the Sinestro Corps because his whole thing is fear and the Sinestro Corps is all about fear. And like Lex Luthor is assigned into like the orange orange lantern because they're like greed and avarice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it has like all kinds of like just fun batshit stuff. It's got a camp factor for sure to see like, oh, oh yeah, the rest of the superhero universe has to come together and like many of them become members of these different lantern groups to defeat this one overall evil. But 
but it's got kind of that zombie movie, even Game of Thrones kind of thing with like, oh, well, this impending threat is coming. Nobody wants to believe us, but it's this thing that shouldn't exist, supposedly doesn't exist, but now it's actually coming and it's going to potentially take over everybody if we don't all team up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's your typical superhero stuff, but it is very much like, oh, cool. All these zombie superheroes are now like coming after us to make us into zombies. Aaron and I both wanted New Mutants to be a good movie because we do like that idea of blending superhero stuff with horror. And this is a good example of that. It's not a movie, but it is the comic. And like Aaron said, it has like some stuff that you kind of roll your eyes at. Certain reading lists or reading orders, plus like that camp factor, like you were saying with all the heroes getting together. But at the end of the day, it's a horror story. Again, it begins with a C-list villain killing his family and then killing himself. And like, it's brutal. There's a lot of like gruesome deaths throughout the entire series. And really, at the end of the day, even if you don't want to like have a reading list, all you have to read are like the main series. I think it's seven or eight issues. And then maybe the Green Lantern tie-ins. Other than that, it's pretty great. I guess for non-comic people or comic newbies, typically whenever you have a crossover, there is a like one-off series that is the main storyline for that crossover. And it's usually anywhere from like four to maybe 12 issues just in and of itself. But then the reason it's called a crossover is because that storyline is essentially bleeding over into every other title in the entire DC catalog. So like Batman for five or six issues is going to be dealing with his part of this overall story. So like they're saying, you can just pick up the 12 issues of this run if you just want the bulk of the story. But if you want to like get all the details or maybe just follow your favorite characters, they have their own chunk of stuff happening at the same time as well. Yeah. And if you were wondering, the main series is Blackest Night issue zero to issue eight. And then really the only title I remember reading that uh, was involved was the Green Lantern title itself. I think it was issues 43 through 52, um, if I remember correctly, was Blackest Night Green Lantern. And those are really the only two series that I think actually are worth reading. Are essential, yeah. Yeah, are essential. It's fantastic. I know there's like an omnibus for it out there, so it's pretty easily available. The issues themselves, last I checked at least, aren't really extremely valuable, so you could even find them pretty easily. And it's just fun. It's just a fun story. It's a good blend of all the exciting shit that makes you smile with superheroes and then actual gruesome horror. So while I was also going through my bookshelf, I again was looking at like the Stephen King books I have. And I'm again, I mostly have Stephen King's like collections of short stories. For some reason, I just like more so than his actual full length novels. I like his short stories a lot. It's easy to commit to a book of short stories than it is to commit to like a fucking 800 page, you know, Stephen King tome. Yeah. Yeah. And dude, it's amazing just how much even his short stories are movies. Totally. So like, for instance, the Night Shift was probably the first collection that I read from Stephen King. In Night Shift, it has Jerusalem's Lot, The Mangler. It also has... Is the Lawnmower Man based off of a Stephen King? It is in name only, and that is it. Okay. Has Children of the Corn. And then in probably the second collection that I actually read from him, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which came out in 93. That one has the Night Flyer, which we actually talked about the Night Flyer a couple episodes back. I want to say like Maximum Overdrive is also based off of a Stephen King short 
short story in one of the collections. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing to me, like, how well he writes to the point where those are turned into, like, not just horror movies, but actually pretty decent horror movies. At least some of them are. Like, yeah. original Children of the Corn is pretty damn good. I will say, and I know that some people would probably call bullshit on this, I think even a bad Stephen King adaptation movie is typically at least above average in terms of all horror movies if that makes sense. I think I would agree with you there. Even when I watched the made-for-TV Shining movie that they did, or, or like short series that they did, um, that Stephen King actually had a hand in and was kind of in response to like Kubrick's The Shining, it wasn't good, but it was still watchable and fairly entertaining yeah. at the end of the day. like Even that was still pretty good. I definitely have a soft spot for some of the crazier shit like maximum overdrive yeah i even definitely dig some of his more underrated stuff like the night flyer that one is fucking awesome and i'm still pissed that like there's not really a good release of that physically so yeah like there's definitely a lot of good stephen king shit out there if you just don't have a ton of exposure so i think i would start off with night shift it's dated he published it back in 1978 it is a good chunk of like some of his like most famous short stories and honestly if i remember correctly my favorite one through the whole thing probably was the mangler you know stephen king always gets dunked on and and joked about about how he takes like inanimate objects and makes them like evil and like that's basically what the mangler is but it's just the way he writes it it's just so believable that movie's a fucking blast <laughs> yeah i i want us to do it eventually but that short story even the short story as wild as it is it still is like yeah this is totally a horror story this works um it's just like no it's literally about a mangler that like got some blood from a girl who happens to be a virgin and then literally no, becomes no, 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 no. a serial killer mangler hold on hold on back up back up because you're saying mangler Let's be real. It's a giant industrial laundry steam press. press yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking laundry machine. <laughs> yep. That's haunted and yep. murders people. <laughs> yep. That's the best part about it. Uh, so yeah, Stephen King short stories. Again, I would start off with Night Shift, but really you can't go wrong with any of his collection of short stories. And you'll be surprised at how many like you kind of recognize as you're reading through. If you don't catch it by the title, you'll start being like, oh, wait, when you are actually reading through it. Yeah. Or on the flip side, if you're like me and you started with the movies and then are getting back into the books, it is interesting to like go back and read stuff like the short story that Running Man is based on because it's very different from the Schwarzenegger movie. Again, we just talked about Lawnmower Man. That short story has literally zero to do with the fucking movie that they made. So it's interesting to go back knowing the movies and then looking at the source material to kind of see how they differ that's pretty much it for my recommendations so quick aside to fill a little bit more time do you know how stephen king responded to the actual lawnmower man movie was he not happy about it so i'll say this with so much of his stuff being adapted from very early on in his career and then from him being more involved with stuff like creep show maximum overdrive right there is definitely a point where stephen king was just like you know what fuck it, I don't care, do whatever you want, I'm not gonna have my feelings hurt, pay me, you know? So, like, his whole dollar baby scheme is kind of the same idea, where, like, you pay him a dollar, he will give you, like, a three-sentence premise if you can, like, develop that into a script 
and like sell it you can make that movie and he just gets a cut in the rights somewhere along the way or whatever you know so like he's definitely just kind of at that point where if somebody makes his stuff what the fuck ever he doesn't care he's not gonna have his feelings hurt if it's not exactly how he wants it like you know he was very upset with Kubrick with The Shining just pay him you know fuck you pay me that's kind of what his attitude is at this point yeah so do you think his dealings with or like his reaction rather to Kubrick's The Shining kind of was the start of him being like okay, this may be not a battle worth fighting over. Honestly, no. I think that was maybe the first instance of realization of, oh, this is just what it's going to be like as people adapt my stuff. It's not going to be the same thing. It's going to be reinterpreted. It's going to be adapted, right? And then I think, like I mentioned a second ago, him getting behind the camera a little bit more and just seeing how the sausage is made and realizing like how much of a journey any movie has to go through from start to beginning and how things change. You know, writing is very singular. You know, a lot of big-time writers will have their editor, but they work very closely with those editors. And then they have a publisher, but the publisher doesn't dip their hands in in the same way. A movie has hundreds, if not thousands, of people working on it. And you've got dozens of people directly shaping what that movie looks like, from the actors to the cinematographer to the director to the composer to the costume and set dressers. You have so many people shaping and crafting what that final product looks like that it can't just be exactly how you imagined it. And I think, again, like him getting behind the camera and realizing that, that probably changed a lot of what his viewpoint was on, you know, am I going to get mad every time that they don't really fully adapt something of mine the way I saw? Well, we did say all that. And while, while we were doing that, I did look it up. Stephen King did actually sue them over Lawnmower Man. Yeah, but I think that was like a fuck you pay me kind of thing. Yeah, because yeah. they, they used the title Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man, and because it differed so much from the source material, he was like, it bore no resemblance to my story, removed my name. And so the, like, he won the, the suit. They paid him, like, I think he had a settlement of like $2.5 And the funny fucking thing is New Line still didn't comply, and their initial home video release still had Stephen King's name in front of The Lawnmower mower man and they were held in contempt of court over it so he is no longer credited on the movie after the lawsuit i just find that that's funny but yeah like you were saying it probably is just fuck you pay me but i do understand his side too though where it's like if you're going to make it so different you're really only borrowing the title of like my story like don't put my name on it it. Yeah, yeah exactly that's all i got this week was just blackest night and uh stephen king short stories So yeah, that's about it for my recommendations. But one last thing before we get into the movie, uh, wanted to shout out our buddy Zach Lamplew, who was on for our Creep episode. At the time, his movie was going under a different name and title. Um, The name has changed. The movie is now going by... 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot. They had an exclusive trailer that was on joblow.com. That's J-O-B-L-O.com. At the time this episode drops, I believe the movie will have already come out. It is going to be out on Apple as well as Google Play and probably on Amazon Prime. And according to Zach, he was saying that it was supposed to release on May 7th. Um, So if you're hearing this after May 7th, please go like support him, check out the movie. Aaron and I have seen it. We both really enjoyed it. Thought it was a lot of fun. So yeah, congratulations once again, Zach. Hell yeah. Proud of you. Yeah. So go check out his shit. Hell yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> 
So, kind of like we mentioned last episode, how is it that we've gotten fucking 60 episodes into this show and not done a Wes Craven movie? Right? So, we figured, what the fuck, let's double up. So, we grabbed arguably his most well-known movie, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and we are bookending that for this chunk with, I feel, probably one of his most underrated movies it comes from a time in his career where i think he was doing some really interesting stuff you know as much as people talk about him like just tearing onto the scene and throwing out these two extremely insane first movies with last house on the left and hills have eyes i really think that his run kind of in the mid 80s to mid 90s is pretty unparalleled there's so much good shit there just to kind of give you an idea during that time period we're talking about serpent in the rainbow in 88 shocker people under the stairs new nightmare vampire in brooklyn and scream that's a pretty wild chunk of movies right there from like 88 to 96 so yeah again wild run of movies but we are going to be covering the one in the middle we are covering 1991 directed by wes craven the people under the stairs in every neighborhood there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid now wes craven creator of a nightmare on elm street takes you inside. Something's in there. But we gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. Ah! There must be another way out. Can't get out, no one ever has. What goes on in this house is a sin. Your father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs (laughs) is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. And you know what? You brought up that this is arguably maybe his most underrated. I don't know movie history nearly as much as you do, but just watching it, it felt like a movie that should have been and should still be bigger than it actually is. Thing is, I think nowadays it's receiving a lot of, not even cult following, like it's it's getting a lot of revisionist like looks at, especially from the horror community. I don't know that it's getting revisionist takes as much as just people revisiting it. People are rediscovering it. That's what yeah. I meant to say. Not revisionist, but rediscovered. A lot of movies kind of of this ilk, boutique Blu-ray labels like Scream Factory, like Arrow, have done a great fucking job of getting 
getting a lot of these movies back in the spotlight again. Yeah. You know, in this movie, certainly, like, it has a fantastic Blu-ray. You can pick it up cheap. This movie, like, a lot of people started talking about it again once it came out and was readily available. And this is one that I remember seeing real young and have seen through <laughs> a lot of my did. life, which I'll kind of get into. <laughs> but I think a lot of what you're trying to get at is because of this movie's themes being shit that's just not gone away once again it's more relevant today than it ever was yeah and once again like horror's always been political shut the fuck up so that right there like how can you watch this movie and not be like this is arguably more political than they live and they live was like a smack in the face of real life shit with politics and cultural differences and yet both of them are dealing with the same exact thing yep and they are so different they're completely different movies but they are dealing with the same exact themes of economic inequality the reaction to reagan you know and in this case bush trickle-down economics racial tensions it's all the same underlying shit yeah you know like that's how fucked things were at that time it's still shit that we're dealing with now. So I think it's just the fact that the movie never lost relevancy. Yeah. That people are still kind of going back to it now saying, oh yeah, this shit's still really good. Well, and I was reading some stuff off the wiki and then also just kind of going to different think pieces and editorials that were written about this movie. And the general gist I got is that while we're here, while we're talking about like, what are the themes, not necessarily the actual horror, because I think more than any movie except maybe They Live, this movie is much more about the themes than it is about the actual horror itself. Although the horror itself is bananas insane, but I'll get to that. Yeah. But like the gist I got was like, this is a very like black comedy satirical look at gentrification, the difference between classes, class warfare, and like hyper capitalism, hyper like Reaganism, hyper like, like you were saying, trickle down economics. And again, it's more relevant today than it ever was. Like in this movie was made in 1991. And while it does kind of feel dated and maybe like fashion only, it's pretty timeless even now when I was watching. Yeah. through it as far as the horror itself goes horror newbies uh i'd say you could watch this one it is right on the line of being like a straight up black comedy movie but it I, i'd say it counts as a horror movie because there's enough creepy imagery and jump scare kind of moments but there's just such this insane again we we say hyper capitalism hyper conservatism but like everything is hyper and it's like portrayal of that to the point where it is almost cartoonish yeah this movie is one of the best examples of horror comedy done well because of how much fucking whiplash you get going from like Everett McGill running through the hallways in a fucking gimp suit with a shotgun blasting in all directions being chased by a fucking Rottweiler who's eating people daddy you know, yeah mommy mommy and daddy. there's literally fucking booby traps and shit and people living in the walls and all of this insane horror bullshit with like a torture dungeon and pit of dead bodies and like cannibalism and then literally just fucking looney tune antics with like the dog zipping down the chutes and into the kitchen with like goofy sound effects and everett mcgill again get punched in the dick and <laughs> slingshotted in the face <laughs> those just... two were great i laughed out loud about those scenes like and yeah. that's where like the like 
Wes Craven is good at comedy too. Like that's the thing. Yeah. The best way that I can, and I've joked with people before, like imagine Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets Home Alone. Like that's pretty much what this fucking movie is, right? Wes Craven loves some fucking booby traps, man. So like the Home Alone comparison is spot on. The only, the major difference is that you would take the boy out of his own home and put him in this home and like turn this home against the people who live here. The like monsters who live here. Yeah, this is Home Alone 3 Lost in LA. (laughs) And Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie are the two bad guys. They're the, they're mommy and daddy. And they are Ed and Nadine rather from Twin Peaks. So did Wes Craven like see Twin Peaks and be like, those are the two I want to be this batshit couple? Basically, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Season one had aired. Season two was filming. And Wendy Robbie like got a call from her agent that, hey, uh, they specifically want you to come and audition for this. And then they were like, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if Everett McGill like also auditioned for this too? LOL, LOL. Nah, they pretty much got scoped out because of Twin Peaks. But the thing too with Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie, both are phenomenal in this movie. I mean, everyone's phenomenal in this movie. Some of the best child acting I think we've covered on this show is in this movie. But yeah, they're fun. With Everett and Wendy specifically, like the key difference here that caught my eye is between Nadine and Mommy, Wendy's two characters, one in Twin Peaks, one in this movie, they're not too far off and like batshitness <laughs> no. and like Wendy's like yeah. Wendy's ability to be like kind of a batshit character. The real swing is Everett McGill going from like quiet, nice big Ed who's just you know maybe a little Super slow like, but like reliable. reliable man's man like ultimate bro you want to hang out and have a beer with him to fucking like the most menacing (laughs) motherfucker like i will get you boy if there's anyone who is part of the texas chainsaw massacre family he would fit right in yeah (laughs) yeah it's good shit and the kid actors in this are also pretty fun from sean whalen who you know this was his first movie and he's one of those that guy actors that you have seen in so much shit playing roach the most recent thing that I can remember him in was he played in Superstore as like the creepy employee. And then in an episode of It's So Sunny in Philadelphia, he was one of the oh, McPoyles. Sure he was a McPoyle. He was one yeah. of the McPoyles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's been in a ton of shit over the years. He's just one of those face actors that like I, I skimmed through and like just his genre stuff to give you an idea. Batman Returns, Tammy and the T-Rex, Waterworld, Twister, The Cable Guy, Men in Black, Idle Hands. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, Hatchet 3, 3 from Hell, like shit ton of TV, which our buddy Rob that we went to college with has always fucking reminded me of Sean Whalen. AJ Langer, who plays Alice, this was also one of her first projects. She was in tons of fucking 90s TV. The main thing that I really remember her from other than this movie is she's the president's daughter in Escape from LA. Oh. Uh, which that's like a fucking bug nuts movie as well, too. I didn't catch that you're right and then the main character in this movie that we're following fool poindexter williams he is played by brandon quentin adams and what a fucking again child performance he's a little badass man he's so good in this was in like so much of my childhood so he kind of started off in dance specifically and he was in like michael jackson's smooth criminal and moonwalker videos but he ended up on a different world which ving rain also was in for a while and then he was in this mighty ducks and fucking sandlot wow so again that's a huge chunk of my childhood right there yeah. seeing this kid yeah lots of 
90s TV as well, too. So, yeah, all three of them are pretty great. Kelly Jo Minter that plays the sister Ruby was also in Lost Boys, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, House Party, New Jack City, Popcorn. So she's she was also in, like, a lot of horror stuff around this time and just a lot of big pop movies in general. She's more of a minor character in this movie, but, like, the parts that she's in, she's excellent. That opening monologue in this movie where she talks about basically the tarot cards, the, and everything, the yeah. tarot cards was great she basically describes how point dexter gets the nickname of fool and like what being the fool in the tarot actually means and how the tarot is all about the fool's journey and then when the fool overcomes everything and he, he inherits the world you know where i originally like learned all of that from persona games that's a big <laughs> theme like the the tarot and the journey of the fool is a big theme in all the persona games and we had meryl on if y'all recall for our uh twin peaks episodes and we talked about the tarot pretty heavily there too but uh that opening dialogue she gives is pretty great and i love the idea that his name fool his nickname fool comes from that this is such a twisted journey of the fool type of movie dealing with these two psychopaths well it's perfect too her whole explanation because you know they're talking about the art on the card and the theme of the card and how because of the fool's dalliance i guess he's walking on the very edge of a cliff that's basically going to crumble at any moment and fall into the ocean but then if he turns around all he can do is walk into the blazing heat of the sun so it's very much the same with fool in this movie how he's in a shit situation his family's going to be evicted they're the only family left in this shitty fucking building full of squatters and crackheads and it's literally a fucking like cinder block shithole building because the people who own it which will you know meet later have just let it fall completely into disruin to specifically drive people out because they just don't give a fuck yeah you know and they find out that they're about to be evicted because they can't yeah. make their you know last payment and his mother's got cancer you know like just no matter what happens he's stuck in this bad place and can't look back and the only option is to just move forward and just go off the edge essentially what happens yeah. with his little journey in this movie he goes off the edge into this insane situation someone who is more versed in the tarot i would love for them to like watch through this movie and point out all the different examples of when we reach a different part of the tarot card because i have a feeling Wes craven like did kind of that a little bit maybe i wouldn't be surprised too if the rest of the family members and people that you meet throughout the course of the movie also kind of have their own stand-ins because you know yeah. we've got ving rames who we haven't even fucking talked about ving rames yet but you know he is a thief and i think like isn't there a tarot card that's the thief right uh no not really but like there are stand-ins for like these kind of archetypes for sure yeah i don't know shit about tarot specifically but in my head like i'm just thinking like okay there's the thief there's alice the virgin there's the mother there's the father there's the son there are these archetypes that you see kind of throughout this story too yeah yeah mythical archetype and magical even archetypes and here's the thing like while we're on this thing about the fool's journey right with point dexter specifically this is what makes this movie like such a fucking masterpiece i would even argue from like Wes craven is that not only is it dripping in all this social commentary and political commentary which is handled very well and hilariously but also like the imagery is like it gets to the point but on top of all of that you have this very personal journey that this kid is going to of kind of becoming a man in in a way yeah and that's all handled really well and 
all the character work is handled really well. You know, Wes Craven, I think at this point in his career, like he kind of knows what he's doing and is almost showing off a little bit with like how well he's handling this movie. And then, yeah, like even someone like the character Leroy, who isn't in the movie as much, is played by Ving Rhames, the great Ving Rhames. Which... As many times as I've seen this movie, for some reason, I just always forget. Oh, yeah, he's not in this a ton. No. Like, he gets bumped out pretty quick. And it's kind of wild because from this movie, you know, he had small parts and stuff like Casualties of War and Jacob's Ladder, which we'll definitely cover eventually. But from here, he's in Pulp Fiction. And then it's a Mission Impossible movie every couple of years, along with stuff like Rosewood. Con Air, Out of Sight, Bringing Out the Dead, Baby Boy, fucking Lilo and Stitch, you know, like wild shit. And again, a Mission Impossible movie in between every couple of years, you know, so he's steadily kind of worked from this movie. Well, on that note, along with Tom Cruise, isn't he like one of the only ones that appears in every single Mission Impossible movie even now? I would have to go back and check that. I I don't think he's in two, but I think he's in like literally every single one from there. Yeah, I peeped on him his uh filmography after watching this and yeah like he's even on the newest one that just came out yeah and i think he's also signed for like seven and eight as well which is that's what they're shooting now i think they're trying to do both of them back to back or some insane shit overall this movie's dealing with a lot of that's one thing i do appreciate about Wes craven is there is always a level of social commentary underneath and a lot of the like masters of horror in air quotes directors tend to do that you know like George George Romero specifically is very kind of socially conscious and has some kind of underlying message in almost all of his movies. Carpenter certainly does about half the time. You know, a lot of times Carpenter is really just remaking the adventure popcorn kind of bullshit that he grew up loving with, you know, kind of a genre heavy horror bent to it. But a lot of his movies do have that level of social commentary. What I like about Craven is that he does bring that to most all of his movies, but he also maybe has the most wildly eclectic pastiche of themes and horror stuff in his movies. That's kind of the fun thing about this movie is that it's not just about the one thing from a horror standpoint. You know, is this movie completely about cannibalism? No, but that's a factor. That's almost like treated like this is just another horrible aspect of this couple. Exactly. Is this movie all about torture? No, but that's an aspect of it. Is this movie all about weird kidnapping of children, brainwashing, mummy daddy kind of bullshit? Yes, no. Like, there's just a lot going on on in this movie and a lot of people give the movie shit for that that it's kind of scattershot but I think if you take it all as a whole I think it still works really well because it is essentially just about the fool wandering into the dragon's lair full of fucking booby traps and insane horrors and bullshit I get that argument like it's a scattershot it's maybe juggling too many things most other movies would fall apart if they're trying to like focus on too many different things but Craven can handle but Craven can handle it and this movie never yeah. feels scattershot to me. Like, it's just a movie that's well-made and just happens to handle a lot of different themes. You know, we have the obvious, well, not obvious, but, you know, yeah, I would argue obvious themes of just the fucking couple even being, like, camouflaged hyper versions of, like, Ronald and Nancy Reagan or, like, the Bushes, like you were saying. And then you have the, the more character-driven stuff with The Fool's Journey. So while we're talking about, like, that, I kind of, like, wanted to know what was 
Craven's headspace when he was in this, right? I looked up a quote from him, and it was back in a 1991 interview with Fangoria. This was like the quote that I saw used a lot. I think it was even on the Wikipedia, but I saw it used in other articles where he stated that the film, quote, is much closer to The Hills Have Eyes than anything I've done in a long time. It's a raw film with no dreams in it whatsoever. It's an extraordinarily real situation involving an awful family that shouldn't exist, but unfortunately often does. And then he updated his like commentary on that because then he was requoted in the 2015 Blu-ray commentary track actually from the version released with Scream Factory where he said that their house represents the whole society of the United States. And like that right there is like biting commentary like as to like what he's trying to get at. But I find that fascinating that like this is much closer to The Hills Have Eyes than anything else he's done because I feel like The Hills Have Eyes, I haven't watched the original start to finish, but like I've talked with you about it enough and everything. It seems like he was trying to go for a certain point, but he was still maybe a little too young and relying too much on shock value to like really get that point across. And I feel like this movie is like that fully realized, that creative energy fully realized. I think they're thematically similar in that they are both about essentially families that have created their own world, their own system, their own code, their own morals, their own hierarchies. They've kind of isolated themselves from society specifically and live and exist outside of those norms and they come into direct conflict with people who are part of that greater world like that's the kind of linking theme between the two you know you've got papa jupiter's family from hills have eyes that are these crazy you know nuclear blast desert dweller cave people cannibals but they still have their family unit and they have their own like system and their own rules and ways of doing things and they have their own interpersonal relationships and this movie you've got you know the Robesons man and woman or mother and father we never really get definitive names for them and they have their you know children in air quotes Alice Roach and all the boys which man anytime that they show them they look like they are about to drop the hottest fucking grunge album of 1991 yep <laughs> but yeah like you have them existing in their own weird like turtle shell of the outside world is scary people of color are scary we don't like the way the world is changing and becoming more whatever Right. Everybody is going to hell but us, even though we're the ones like murdering and kidnapping, abusing people. Exactly. And that religious bent, I think, is also interesting. Like, especially knowing Wes Craven's background, knowing that he came from a very hyper, like, Methodist Calvinist, something like that. Well, and that's that's what I took their, like, religious thing, because, like, the whole time they reference religion, it's all about, like, all these people are going to hell. Anyone different from us is going it's to hell. It's just about hell. Yeah. N- that's, what, yeah. that's what I was about to say. It's just about separating us from everybody yeah. else. Everybody else is going to hell. If you're not living like us, you're impure, you're imperfect, you're going to hell. It's definitely a satirical take on like fanatical Christian religion that dominates yeah. a lot of the United States, unfortunately. And notice that it is just about the damnation part. Yeah, it is exactly. just about the separating us from them from everybody else because there is no other real reflection of that 
that Christianity and that faith in this movie. Like, there are no references to Christ. Forgiveness. Or, Jesus, yeah. or forgiveness. There's none of the, like, same iconography and imagery. You don't see Bibles anywhere. There's no scenes of them running around screaming Bible verses as they're chasing fool through the house of traps. It's very much just, we have co-opted Christianity and we are just going to cherry pick the bits and pieces that we like for our society inside this house the way that we're choosing to live yeah and only preach about damnation which hey that uh sounds familiar yeah that's a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of unfortunately uh fanatic christianity that's your reagan conservatives yeah well and on, on that note so even aside from the religion something that really struck me in this watch was how and even in reference to the hills have eyes because in the hills have eyes like as far as i i know with the plot synopsis it's a family that gets stranded out in these people's area right it's out in the middle of the desert there's no one else around where the difference here is these people literally live in a neighborhood. Yeah. It's in LA, technically, right? Yeah. It's an LA neighborhood. And there's, I mean, there's a house across the street from where they live. But when you're inside the house, you feel like you are locked out from that society so much. And the thing that kind of got me, because throughout the movie, with all these references of things you see and the things they say as they're trying to hunt down Fool and everyone else is that they've been doing this for a while. Plenty of people have like come into their house or tried to come into their house. They've let them in and then they've disappeared and turns out they killed them, cannibalized them. Well, you see Alice has been making all of her little voodoo dolls for everybody. To capture their souls. Yeah, that's <laughs> a small detail that just gets passed over. But yeah, she's literally making voodoo dolls so that the souls of all the fucking people who are murdered by this family like have somewhere to go. Yeah. And she dumps out this fucking box full it's of dozens all these of things. Them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's does so it's like so my thought process was like how the fuck did they get away with this for so long right yeah but then when you think about it it's implied they are kind of in the middle of the neighborhood that they kind of own which is a lower socioeconomic neighborhood it's predominantly people of color you even get the sense that no matter what the police are going to always take the side of these two white people will not just take their side but from the get-go just never assume yeah right they're just always going Going to assume what could be wrong exactly here, right? these are perfectly upstanding normal like white people surely they aren't up to anything bad the police just they don't come in with the same preconceived notions yeah. but like not only that i almost took it as they also don't necessarily like dealing with this neighborhood like it's a lost cause to them like yeah you think about uh which serial killer was it old cannibal himself dahmer. jeffrey dahmer dahmer got away with it for so long because he lived in a lower socioeconomic building and everyone in the community kind of knew that hey dahmer like there's something going on he was the weird white guy living in the hood yeah yeah and like but like the police never cared nobody that could do anything about it would pay attention yeah, yeah and like no one would believe the rest of the neighborhood anyway and like i felt that with this movie i felt like okay they are getting away with this because like no matter who you're gonna go who's to? gonna respond like who are you gonna go to like the police aren't gonna believe you and the police go to them already like you said with that assumption like that these are two upstanding people they're wealthy they're white it can't be them that's very much like again like yeah if you think horror isn't political like what are you watch <laughs> yeah so while we're kind of on this note like i mentioned last episode with nightmare on elm street and how craven tends to find inspiration for a lot of his movies from real life stories this movie likewise kind of came out of a story that he read about where there was this 
very, very on the outside, clean cut, seemingly normal couple. One of their kind of busybody, nosy neighbors noticed that the house was being broken into and called the police. When the police got there, they didn't find like any robbers. There wasn't really anybody there. If there had been, they were gone. So no idea whether or not there was any truth to that aspect of it. But once they went inside the house, they heard like knocking and screaming behind a closed door and they opened the door and found like a fucking torture dungeon where these people had been keeping their children for like a decade. That's fucked. And they had been down there like they had their own weird like language that they created because they never actually learned how to speak. They had been eating like animals and treated like animals and had zero social skills and you know were like super pale because of the lack of sunlight and everything else and malnourishment. So they probably kind of did look like the people under the stairs in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of one of those things of like seemingly normal everyday people and then something fucked up behind closed doors, right? Very much the same with a lot of serial killers. Another thing that influences this movie heavily, which it happened kind of during production of the movie, but it certainly like hardened their resolve a little bit about some of the decision making that was going on. Rodney King's beating by the police in L.A., also happened in like March of this year. Wow. While they were making this movie. The movie came out in November. So it was just kind of one of those, oh yeah, cool. If people think that we're like maybe exaggerating a little bit or going a little bit too much on the whole like racial inequality in America kind of thing, like, yeah, there you go. Uh, So those two things definitely played a big part. I also enjoy too that this was just kind of such a weird one-off idea in general, because I mean, Craven, he was coming off of Nightmare on Elm Street and doing his best to like try to move on and do other shit, despite them constantly like trying to pull him back and trying to pull him back. Yeah, I was gonna say, wasn't Shocker like in between Nightmare and this movie? Yeah, Shocker was the movie before this one, and that was kind of his attempt to like come up with a similar boogeyman character supernaturally kind of thing that he could kind of keep as his own this time because with freddy krueger i mean like he made that first movie but the character the idea the world didn't really belong to him from a right standpoint so he didn't necessarily agree with the direction that freddy krueger had gone in and so shocker was kind of his attempt to come up with something on his own you know After this movie, his next movie would be New Nightmare. Yeah. So, you know, immediately he is kind of jumping back into that world, but he's jumping back into it and completely reinventing it and creating this kind of meta insane take on it that would certainly bleed over into Scream just a few years later. But this movie was successful. It made $31 million off of a $6 million budget. And this was kind of when he was working with a live films along with Carpenter and they were kind of making these lower budget horror movies but being able to like have complete creative freedom which Craven, Romero, Hooper, Carpenter, all of them had to deal with bullshit from the studios they were working with, the producers that they were working with, the MPAA. So this was kind of a like, yeah, do whatever the fuck you want, 
have fun, here's your money, very few strings attached. He was able to make this movie with very little interference. So I'm glad that that, but also I'm glad that it was successful because I know like once again, here we are like with another horror movie that at the time was kind of received with mixed reviews. I think it was mostly positive above average. But again, like you had mixed review response. Again, you have fucking Siskel and Ebert, especially Ebert being cold on it because they don't like horror movies. We watch it now and we're like, no, this is again, I would argue it's it's, it's borderline masterpiece, like in terms of just horror comedy that dunks on on so many serious themes and socio-political elements to American society. Like, I think it handles it almost masterfully, arguably masterfully. And the tension and the horror stuff in it works really well, yeah. too. You know, I don't think it's one thing works, but the other thing doesn't. You know, is as funny as it is, and, and I was telling this to Heather because I was watching it on a lunch break, I will never not fucking laugh during the scene where the dog, the Rottweiler is chasing Fool through the house, and he manages to get into that bedroom, and he fucking punches the dog in the face, <laughs> but it's that, like, fucking puppet yep. dog head that he punches, that it just makes it, like, kind of punch noise in the dog, or just, that is just such Looney Tunes horse shit, and again, like Roach shooting the big Ed with the like slingshot and him just like uh, falling over. He even does like the fall over like a Looney Tunes cartoon like he's dazed. <laughs> yeah. Fucking fool putting his fingers up Wendy Roby's nose while they're in the fireplace. Just the Looney Tunes shit in this movie I fucking love. It's the same shit from like Evil Dead and Dead Alive that I love. It's the same like slapstick bullshit tone but the horror side of this movie is dark it's real dark those fucking balls to the walls yeah, yeah like, like it's really dark it's one thing that like fool punches father in the dick and he you know crosses his eyes and falls over but then you literally like a scene before see him down in the basement with a slicker on cutting the fucking rib cage out of ving rames's dead body that's hanging from the rafters and just peeling pieces off and eating it the fuck and right in front of fool too yeah and then dumping the body in this fucking cesspit trap that they have underneath the house there's horror shit in this for sure even as ridiculous as it is with him like putting on that gimp costume which i love that the movie never explains <laughs> that shit's the so movie good. never explains like why he does that beyond like he does it when he's hunting that is one of the <laughs> best reveals and anytime that i've watched this movie with other people like that moment where he fucking kicks open that weird hideaway door in the hallway and just comes fucking lumbering out in that full head-to-toe gimp suit with the shotgun everybody that's watching the movie at that moment just goes what the fuck and like you have that and like anytime like he dispatches someone or like kills someone or thinks he kills someone like him fucking dancing around doing his weird dance doing his weird dance like all that is like whoa like this is extreme but then yeah just the idea like what these people are actually doing to anyone who comes into their house and to the children that they have like in their basement and to Alice herself it's fucked up yeah it's weird serial killer shit that you hear about of oh yeah they like spoke to a neighbor so we cut their tongue out and now we like keep them in the basement and just you know insane shit yeah Yeah. oh you tried to get away cool we're just gonna like cut one of your feet off and after watching this movie I have to think because I've referenced these type of games before like the clock tower games I did it most recently like in recommendations with uh, remothered tormented fathers that whole idea of like you're in this weird giant house that has all these like weird compartments and behind the walls 
hotels, places you can get into, and there's some like unstoppable stalker who is fucked in the head trying to kill you and stalking the halls looking for you. You can't tell me like, yes, I know they that at least the Clock Tower series came from Capcom and is a Japanese game, but you can't tell me they didn't watch this movie and take inspiration for those types of video games like that type of horror because that is exactly what this felt like. It felt like Fool was going like corridor to corridor like a stealth video game like waiting for the stalker who is father with the shotgun and a gimp suit shooting random walls in the hallway trying to kill him or Roach. It's pretty fucking nuts. Yeah, I love the house in this because it does have so much character and it's such a good fucking environment for a movie like this. It's like the Winchester house. Like there's places that go nowhere and like hidden compartments everywhere. And kind of like you said earlier where it's a very fun and different take on like the fucking House of Horrors bullshit because unlike the trope of the cabin in the woods kind of thing where like oh you're stuck but there's nowhere for you to go you're fucked kind of Texas Chainsaw style like once she gets out of the house where is she gonna fucking go even see in that movie she runs all the way up to like the fucking main road and goes to the gas station only to realize oh fuck the gas station is the same dude from the house and you just end up right back there and this movie is basically the opposite where it's all about just getting out of the house you know in Texas Chainsaw you can easily get out the house she gets out the house a few times but there's just nowhere to go and in this movie getting out of the house is the entire fucking object because once you can get out the house you know you're good because you are just in the neighborhood again and there's safety there there's safety in all the other people that are around you it's just can you get out of this fucked house well in the house like has bars on every window the fucking door is electrified if you try and like yeah. open it <laughs> giant fucking like steel doors that are electrified booby traps everywhere yeah yeah they control the booby traps and like they can like lock down the house it's just insane something else that's very smart in this movie too the way that it builds is the house starts off feeling normal when they first drive by the house they do talk about like fuck this house goes on forever like look how big it is from the street it's bigger than you know all the other houses on this block there is like a very like you can wrap your head around it kind of quality to the house from the outside, right? Like, you can kind of look at the people and gauge how big this house is. And then they get inside, and they, like, start in kind of this utility room, and then they get into the kitchen, and then they end up in the living room, and then they get upstairs. And the house just continues to get bigger and more labyrinthian and more complicated and more just made like the further and deeper that they get into the house and i still like don't really have a handle on like how many stories is this house it used to be a funeral home right and so the basement is the morgue where all the gross work was done so there is a basement there is the main floor there is a second floor there is a weird kind of third floor and then there's like an attic you know like how fucking big is this house it just seems to go on forever Oh, I was going to say, well, at one point, Fool even, like, after he meets Alice, like, at one point, he's just like, you know, this house is so big, like, how am I ever supposed to get out? Like, I need to get out of this house. And 
and then she's saying like we got to go into the wall we got to go through this crawl space he's like no hell no i don't want to go in there and she even mentions and this kind of goes back to the fool's journey again she has a quote that says like something like along the lines of like sometimes the only way out is to go further in and that's like the whole point of this movie is like you're going further into this house to hopefully get out of it yeah totally and the way to that the more you're exposed to like the insanity of this house the more that you see like the booby traps and the more that you get into the world of roach and all the other kids that are in the basement and it goes from like okay cool there's like closets and there's weird little crawl spaces to the in between the walls is big enough that like two kids can full body like run down between you know the spaces in the walls how big is this house but the movie does a good job of little by little gradually building to those things and in a way that like if you look at the movie from the last act you would immediately say like this is insane they don't build houses like that you know they don't build houses with enough space in between the walls for like my fat ass to squeeze (laughs) down them right but if you start at the beginning of this movie like there is that gradual build to the house becoming more and more ridiculous that you like slide into that and by the end of the movie it's just kind of a granted that like oh yeah duh of course this house is that insane and over the top The, the only comparison in real life I can think of as the Winchester house. The Winchester house, yeah. And I do love how old everything in the house is. There is just a gross layer of dust on everything. And that's something that I find interesting about the family as well, too. They're not opulent they're not living in their wealth they're living in filth that house is disgusting everything is covered in dust everything is covered in mold everything is nasty because they don't take care of it just like they don't take care of all the property that they own around town there is a decrepitude to it that you can tell is seeping from within them outward right like it's just kind of this everything seems okay on the outside but the inside of this house is rotting to the core and the irony of it all is they're hoarding all the gold and wealth literally in this movie. And, and that's what I was about to say. They aren't living in a mansion. They're not living in like this shiny, new, fancy, everything is covered in fucking gold mansion. You know, they are living in this fucking ancient family home that was a funeral home and you can tell that they are probably living in the same furniture that their like grandparents and great-grandparents owned in this house the entire time the fucking police detective guy even says like hey you don't find shit like that down at the value mart once you see in the basement at the end the like insane dragon's horde of fucking cash just loose cash fucking bags of cash just poured out in a pile and gold coins and like bank bags literally could help the community that they're tearing down by being complete insane assholes it is just dragon hoarding mentality it's just own the wealth for the sake of possessing it not for using it and doing something with it it is strictly just i want all of it 
so that you do not have any of it. You know, it's not a, I have plans for something that I am going to do with this. They're not using it. They're clearly not spending any of the money. They are just taking it for the sake of taking it and sitting on it just because they want it. Just because they want everything and they want others to have nothing. They are dragons of late stage capitalism. They are Trump dragons, basically. Absolutely. Kind of one last thing with them, because I do want to go more in towards the societal comparison, specifically from where Fool's coming from and the outside of the house and like the area it's in. But talk about a hell of a reveal too of like these two characters, because the first bit we're introduced to them is like the mom emotionally and mentally like abusive using Alice and then father is the very first scene you see him just sitting and he's eating just fucking chawing he's chawing down on like what you think is just meat right then he pulls out some buckshot and he goes damn buckshot later on you come to realize like that was probably a fucking person he just murdered and like shot with his shotgun yeah that big fucking like Flintstones ass rib cage that he's just sitting there sawing into in front of the fireplace with his glass of milk yeah he pulls out a, a bit of a uh, of shotgun blast that was left in it and then like the second seed you see him in is like when they learn about the liquor store got knocked over and he drops it like a hard n-word like right there it's like oh these people not only are monsters but they're giant racists as well like, that's kind of another factor like we mentioned they own all of this fucking real estate and all of these apartment buildings and homes and shit around this entire neighborhood area they also own this liquor store and that's kind of the catalyst for the plot is again fool's family is about to be evicted his mother has cancer like they are a rock and hard place how do we make this situation work out and one of his sister's friends leroy again played by ving rames he kind of has this idea of like look why don't we fucking knock off the landlords they own the liquor store that we robbed last night we found a fucking treasure map to their house they've got gold up in there like let's go take that shit fuck these people let's go get our money back let's go like get something for us and he basically like talks ruby and fool into like yeah fool why don't you come with us because you're like tiny and you can help out with like getting into small places and blah 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 and we have this whole plan and you know initially they try to sneak their way in by pretending to be boy scouts and stuff like that well and i was gonna say he tries to appeal fool it's time for you to man up yeah but he does it in kind of that toxic way yeah exactly you need to man up in the sense that you need to be this type of toxic male figure a very like like, take what you fucking want, kick teeth in, fuck everybody else. It's very much in that, like, negative kind of way. And Fool's transformation over the course of the movie, like, he definitely pushes back on that by the end. Well, I would say he even pushing back on it a little bit in the beginning. Like, I think, yeah, there isn't a part of him that does want to prove himself. But I think at the same time, like, he never lose sight from the fact that he's doing this for his mom and his sister. I think that's always first and foremost in his mind yeah i was like i'm doing this for them but there is a little bit of leroy like kind of being like it's time for you to man up like and i do think in the beginning that is also sort of important to him but yes i think by the end he realizes that that's not what this is all about so something i wanted to ask you because 
Mommy and Daddy, again, we talked about their Everett, McGill, and Wendy Robbie, two Caucasian actor and actress. The other main characters in this are all people of color. Was That was intentional by Wes Craven, right? Like with everything that he's trying to portray yeah. in this. And like you were saying with Rodney King happening around the same time, I was looking up as you were talking about it, about that real world case where it led to the police officers discovering the children when there were two African-American burglars that had a forced entry into the same type of house. That's right. Yeah, it was very much. A, oh, I saw black yeah. people near that house. They must be there to rob it. You know, exactly. It was very much of that thing. It was like very racial stereotyping. People might call bullshit on that. Just a few fucking years ago, like for Christ's sakes, one of the guys that I was going to school with, that we were commuting with, pulls into our driveway to come pick us up because it's his turn to drive. And our fucking busybody old white lady neighbor calls us and is like, "There is a black guy in y'all's driveway. Do you?" know him jesus christ fucking know him like right jesus christ it happens that shit happens all the time so for anybody that's like oh no that doesn't actually happen in real life that's just overblown fuck yourself no this shit happens there are plenty of people who are quick to jump to the conclusions right you and i have been firsthand witnesses to like you just said you just dropped a story right there but like with us growing up in the southeast yeah that happens all the time yeah that stereotyping happens all the time yeah and and to that point like one thing i do think is interesting that is an aggravating aspect of boomerism especially but the entire idea that this couple in air quotes right mommy daddy Daddy. the robesons which i guess let's you know say it now at this point we find out later from grandpa booker played by bill cobbs who was also one of the like best that guy actors in the fucking business yeah i I recognized him and i was like i looked him up and i was like oh shit he has been in a lot yeah he basically is the one that gives the full like exposition dump explanation to fool and ruth of like oh yeah no this family's fucking crazy they always have been they've gotten crazier every generation they continue to hoard wealth and that drives their insanity dot 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 mommy and daddy are actually like brother and sister it was never like explicitly laid out what the fuck was going on but you essentially do find out that they were brother and sister and they are now playing fake family and they are mommy and daddy now with their fake kids who are not their kids they are kids that they were like stealing from the neighborhood and raising it's even implied some of the kids are like people they murdered their parents and then like just kept the kids yeah so it's implied that they fuck right (laughs) probably probably so yeah (laughs) Yeah. just uh, that scene where he's just like oh i've got a headache like oh oh, i need to relax and then like you you get a headache baby you get in that tension again like just uh gross and then yeah you see him like storming out the fucking gimp suit on (laughs) later (laughs) anyway so this whole idea of them trying to create this ideal you know 1950s postcard family their idea of what this upstanding american christian white perfect family is and they're like insane attempt to like go back to in air quotes the good old days right and that entire idea that drives me up the fucking wall like whenever we hear shitty aunts uncles grandparents parents whatever like just old people that you interact with in general who just always have that fucking nostalgia for oh yeah well back then in air quotes 
things were better. And that's just never been the case ever. Yeah. You know, like, at least not in the history of modern America. Like, there's not really a time ever where, like, just everything magically was better. Certain aspects of things might be easier, more convenient, more prevalent, cheaper, whatever. But just because one aspect was better doesn't mean everything was better. And it certainly doesn't mean that everything or even those things that might be good for some people are good for other people right? Yeah, the 1950s were probably a great fucking time if you were, like, middle-class white American, but if you were anybody else, you know, if you were, like, any kind of person of color, if you were anything other than, like, heteronormative Christian, like, anything, right? If you were anything outside of, like, that specific set. If you weren't a man, even. Yeah. Guess what? Things probably weren't actually good for you right so just that entire idea of we need to get back to basics we need to like get some in air quotes family values tm anytime that i hear fucking politicians talk about family values tm i want to fucking throw up because it's just code for like we want to get back to where we can call people the n-word and our wife can make us sandwiches we like go to church and fuck once a week that's it times are great that's all that is it's just fucking code for like we want to openly be able to make racist homophobic sexual inappropriate jokes just like it's just code for like we want to go back to a time where we had all the power and that's essentially what this family is doing like they are the ones controlling everything in this neighborhood they are crafting this world and twisting and like building their own version of what they feel like reality should be in their own weird little way in this bubble of this fucking murder house they are trying to actively reshape the rest of the world outside of that to their liking by again driving families out of their homes and not upkeeping their buildings and like letting people live in squalor and evicting people to bulldoze those buildings bulldoze those houses like they say in the movie and build condominiums where they're going to get nice clean people in air quotes again and again you know exactly like what that's code for right so they are actively trying to shape the outside world in their own warped twisted idea of what it should be and it goes back to that entire fucking boomer attitude of things were better back in the day we should get back to that well, and that idea, like you were saying, that like back in the day was great, which is a, is a shitty take. I 100% agree with you on there. We always see it with a lot of these movies, horror movies, but honestly, like a lot of just timeless or movies that are well-received historically, like they're always saying like they're before their time. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, no, they weren't before their time. They were just the only movies like calling out all the bullshit at the time. Exactly. And like no one was actually like yeah. paying attention and listening to that. And then like in retrospect, when we have a modern lens, we're like, yeah, that was really fucked in our history by the way that movie is great it talks about all this stuff that was fucked about it it's like yeah but that movie came out at the time and that directors and writers and probably a lot of the people involved in the film in general like knew exactly how fucked it was at that time yeah the fact that they were like conscious of that stuff at the time shows they were a little more tapped in and they were paying attention at that moment and they were saying something about it yeah. at that moment it's not like a oops we just accidentally happened to stumble 
upon this theme that is relevant. Yeah. There was intent and there was purpose behind what is in this movie. Yeah. So to kind of like wrap things up, I wanted to get your thoughts on the ending because I loved the ending. It's very on the nose with the imagery it's showing because basically, all right, so spoiler alerts for the ending of this movie. It ends with Fool being confronted by Daddy in the vault in the basement. Mommy is literally killed by like all the fucking children they had locked up in the basement and Alice. Which I love that moment where, you know, she gets Alice to like clean up all the blood that's on the floor from when they killed Leroy and then just ungrateful children, you know, not doing their chores. And you'll be the death of children me. Children in the walls and, you know, just you'll all be the death of me. Like... Yeah, that's some good foreshadowing. <laughs> well, and they, and they literally come through the walls and like yeah. they and Alice kill Mommy, which, you know, there's that imagery is being shown, but then kind of going back to more of the, like the socioeconomic political imagery, it ends with Fool being confronted by Daddy in the vault. And in the vault, there was also dynamite. Fool cleverly like traps Daddy in there and has the two wires he's like, if you shoot me, I'm going to blow us all to hell, basically. And Fool even tries to be like, I don't want to kill you, even after all this bullshit that yeah. like he's seen and been through because of these two fucking people. Like, Fool is still just like, it's over, man. Like, come on, like, give up or you die. And of course, Daddy tries to shoot him and Fool brings the wires together and blows up Daddy in the vault. And the imagery that is so on point is the people under the stairs, the kids under the stairs, they all escape out into the night after killing Mommy. And all the money and gold that they were hoarding is blown up through the chimney and rains down on the community of people that they have fucked over for God knows how long. And like all their wealth is basically distributed out to the people who actually need it through that explosion. And Fool survives the explosion, um, reunites with his family. And, you know, it's implied that, you know, his mom is going to get medical treatment and yada yada. And that and it actually it doesn't end on any like cliffhanger where daddy is still alive. Yeah. Now, there's no stinger to this at all. It just kind of ends on that positive note. Yeah. And I just love the imagery of the wealth blowing up out of the house among the community that, like, have been fucked over for so long by these two psychopaths. That's such a fuck you to all these people that this movie is riffing on. Middle finger ending that I love it. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's a great fuck you to trickle down economics. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, Reaganomics and all the shit that had been going on to the years prior to this movie where there was no wealth trickling down. The wealth was just trickling up and getting stuck. You know, like that's how Reaganomics works. So it's always fucking work. Trickle down economics is not fucking work. Just to be, again, like conscious of it at the time is pretty great, you know, and just not trying to end the movie on a downer note. Like you said, just immediate rapid redistribution of wealth. Fuck you. Like, let's balance the scales. Take out this one like evil fucking family and everybody in this entire area is going to be better for it. You know, like, get rid of this one root problem, and lots of things are going to prosper and, like, get better from here. You know, it it is nice to, like, have a horror movie that does end on that positive note. You know, the most recent example that, like, lots of people have talked about is the end of Get Out. 
and I guess spoilers for that movie, if you haven't seen Get Out at this point, like, what the fuck are you doing? But, you know, one of the ending options was for the police to, like, show up at the end and shoot David Kaluuya, right? And that would be a very, like, very, very downer and stark ending. But the fact that the police show up and it's Rel, you know, and they get out and they make it out of the movie. They literally get out and they're safe and like, there, there's your happy ending. Like, that's such a fucking good, okay, yeah, we needed this. We all needed this happy ending in this entire shit situation. The bad guys in this circumstance cannot be the ones to win. It has to end on that positive vibe. And I definitely appreciate this movie for very much the same reasons. The people who have fucked over everything get what's coming to them, and that's it. This entire story is essentially Jack and the Beanstalk at the end of the day, you know, and I kind of thought about that earlier when you were talking about how it's kind of mythic and fairy tale. It's very much just Jack and the Beanstalk. It's mom is sick, gotta go figure out what the fuck to do. Oh, this guy is selling these fucking magic beans. Yeah, it turns out it's inhabited by giants. Yeah, Castle in the sky, giants crazy shit running for your life the giants are hoarding wealth right to the point where daddy is played by a very tall looming actor <laughs> yeah right so it's it's like a lot of the same dynamics and then what happens at the end of fucking beanstalk they chop the motherfucking beanstalk down and the giant falls down and dies right it's very much kind of the same thing in that regard and i'm glad that that's how it ends ultimately as goofy as it is of okay yeah now all the like creepy pale vampire zombie looking motherfuckers who were who in the basement all fucked up <laughs> who like don't speak and have yeah. been eating people for the last few years they're now just wandering fucking downtown LA you know like okay sure like that's kind of a weird they all got out but like to what end but you know just knowing that the rest of the community and fool and his family and everything are gonna be well the funny part of that is when they're wandering out they're walking through the community as a community is like cheering and getting them like grabbing the money out of the air and stuff and nobody's paying attention (laughs) well they all look like happy with it like the people under the stairs look like yeah these people seem cool let's go guys and then like the people around them are like whatever yeah and again my favorite of all endings is this movie ends with a fucking rap song over the credits hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not as on the nose as- it's pretty on the nose but not for like the comedic like reason of like it's rapping about the plot of the movie but it is pretty on the nose for like what themes this movie is going at it's do the right thing yeah by redhead kingpin from the sauce dealing and dealing and big willing and to a younger mind that stuff is appealing so what do they do they gather up a crew go out and steal a rob instead of getting a job now your mother tried to bring you up better than that the same way she loved you you love the right back but now you think you're grown and you argue a lot over money and got from dealing stuff in the block now you're not the only one in the world that has problems keep your head straight and you can surely solve them be a fly guy and reach sky high and like the jeffersons you get a piece of the pie i hope you take heed to the message i put in other words the lesson I taught The red I kick a lyric But I won't sing And the FBI crew wants you And you will lose the right then Right there, like that's biting commentary right there. Speaking of too, there is also another rap hip hop duo 
called people under the stairs that specifically took their name from this movie but yeah like overall this is a fun as shit movie genuinely solid horror stuff lots of good social commentary insane goofy looney tunes whiplashy kind of bullshit but one that i have a lot of fun with returning to and like i mentioned earlier i've seen this movie most of my life this was a movie that was definitely popular that a lot of kids were talking about when I was younger so it's one that I saw over at other people's houses growing up and it was on cable a lot and there was just something about how zany it was but how kind of relatable it was when we were kids we were you know not much younger than Fool is in this movie when this came out you know we were a few years behind obviously but we could relate to him in kind of the same way (laughs) again what the fuck was the deal with fucking movies with kids and booby traps like i think it literally all just stems out of home alone and how popular that movie was did home alone come out before or after this movie though yeah home alone was like 88 89 okay i thought it was a 90s movie no because uh home alone 2 comes out the year after this but just something about like the amount of booby trap kid related movies that we watched growing up that certainly like had appeal in this movie just seeing all the like trap doors and my favorites like the fucking stairs that you like flip a switch and the stairs all shift and go to like a smooth flat ramp yep. and so they're constantly sliding down that ramp and throwing things down that ramp and then just flip a switch and the stairs go back up again just so much of that stuff appeals to us when we were kids yeah and you know the deeper implications of this movie went over our heads certainly at the time but it wasn't really about that when we were kids you know it was very much about getting stuck in this spoopy house with these crazy people and all these fucking booby traps well again fool fool himself and child acting performance in this is great it's top notch it's one of those performances that's relatable to a lot of us at that age range i feel like yeah totally what was that fucking car that daddy drove oh i don't know was Is it a hearse or like a... No, it's some fucking giant Lincoln Cadillac-ass boat car. Just something fucking huge. Well, and I think someone like makes a comment earlier in the movie about like driving Cadillacs like once they break big and and with this robbery scheme. I think it might have been Leroy or someone. And then like here you have him driving, I think, the car that they referenced. But uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, and I'm sure you know about this, Aaron, but as I was reading up on this movie, I kind of was reading like, where are we in terms like remakes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And there was talk of Craven, like even at one point talking about a remake of this and it stalled. I know. Yeah. Like a few years ago before he died, he was actively developing a TV show with sci-fi around this concept with sci-fi channel. Yeah. And I think a lot of it got halted because he died. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. That news came out in 2015 and then, yeah, he passed away and it stalled, but as of right now, or like as of October 2020, like just a couple months ago, Collider... Didn't Jordan Peele say that he was doing a remake? Collider reported that Jordan Peele and Wynn Rosenfeld, uh, who is the guy who wrote and produced the new Candyman, he was also executive producer on Black Klansman. Gotcha. The two of them are signed on to produce a remake under Monkey Paw Productions for Universal Pictures. Okay. Hell yeah. I'm down. Like if they're going to do a remake make like it sounds like they're getting the right people on board for it but yeah i I mean other than that like i don't know what else there is to say that you or i haven't already said i i loved this movie i I loved it 
not just for like how crazy and interesting and even creative the tropes that's going off on but just also like the biting social commentary like and just how much it is effective today yeah and this came out you know 30 years ago at this point yeah this is definitely one that i have wanted to catch in a theater with a crowd for a long time oh yeah that would be a good experience like i said this was definitely one that like i remember watching with friends growing up and it just always being like a fucking blast so i definitely would love to see this with a big audience full of people especially again just a whole audience reacting to fucking everett mcgill busting out of that wall in the gimp suit just that moment like give me just a crowd (laughs) reaction of that yeah but yeah like definitely a lot of fun genuine good scary shit good thrills and suspense good slapsticky humor good messaging like the just yeah solid again a good starter horror movie for horror newbies this is a fucking good young teenager to teenager horror movie for sure yeah like this is it's intense but it's not horror movie intense it's very dark and there's a lot of sinister nature to it but there is a lot of that slapstick comedic edge that really like helps i guess digest the, some of the themes you're, you're you're seeing and i just think like it's scary enough to be a great horror movie but it's not too scary for anyone who is kind of like me who like kind of wants to just dip their toes yeah good shit all right that's gonna be it for this week's episode of watch if you dare uh, once again this is your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek all of our future episodes are going to be dropping on every podcatcher of choice including podbean apple Podcasts, spotify definitely rate review subscribe on those specifically apple podcasts thank you all for listening thank you all for your support on twitter as well thank you again to my brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for the music bumps the beginning and the ends of every episode uh you can find his stuff at his Bandcamp page under party gator opossums or any of the other linked off acts that he's associated with don't forget to check out our spotify music playlist specifically which is pinned on the top of our twitter and there's a link to it off of our podbean page as well yep, yep. if you want to like listen to some spooky tunes that both aaron and i have thrown in yep yep so that's it Derek. you got any final words for us this week you sallies will be the death of me The death of me. I'm gonna get you, Sally!